Uh, I invite you to turn now to Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Acts 2, 41 through 47 is our passage today for the message, and I invite you to also stand for the reading of God's holy word. Acts 2, verse 41, hear now the living and abiding word of God. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many Wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as any one had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated and let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we come to remember what you have done. We come to remember your great work of redemption uh, through your Son and through the sending of the Holy Spirit to your church to build your church. And we, uh, we're thankful for this account in Acts that we can come and review today and, and learn of what you've done as well as what you are still doing in the church. Uh, so we ask that you would guide us, Spirit of God, uh, teach us from this passage the things that are needful for each and every one of us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we pick up in Acts today once again, and we are coming to the end of one of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible. It's remarkable because it describes how Jesus built his church in amazing ways here on the day of Pentecost. That was the significant moment of Acts chapter 2. And thousands of souls added to the church. The church built up here in the city of Jerusalem and eventually spreading all over the world. We are watching the foundation being laid for the church of Christ. It's like looking at a a building in history that's been standing for thousands of years and we get to go back in time and we get to look at the foundation stones being laid and how it happened. This is exciting history for us that speaks not only to what happened in the past, but what God is still doing in the church today. Acts chapter 2 describes that momentous event when the Holy Spirit was poured out in abundance bringing about a revival of spiritual life and and building the church rapidly and exponentially. Imagine, if you will, 3,000 souls being added to this church on a single day. We wouldn't have room for them. We wouldn't have time for the baptisms. We'd be here all day long, which would be a good thing to be here all day long for. Uh, What an amazing thing took place. We need to picture this once again. So to review, uh, we have looked at this chapter in four parts. There was so much in it, we couldn't do it in uh, one message by any means. 
Uh, But let's review those four sections to see where we have come to today. The first part of Acts 2 was the day of Pentecost moment itself. The Spirit of God poured out. uh, People speaking in languages that they had never learned before. And the gospel is being heard in all these different languages. And people hearing the mighty works of God declared. And Peter, he uses this as an opportunity to preach one of the greatest sermons in the history of the church. He says, I want to tell you why the Spirit of God has been poured out. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ, who is risen, who has ascended to the right hand of God, who is Lord of lords over all. Repent and believe in him. That was the second section that we looked at. And then the third section was the call that Peter gave to the the audience to repent and to be baptized and to be joined into the body of Christ. Uh, And so we studied that last time we were in Acts, and now we come to the final portion of this chapter, which describes for us the formation of the church in Jerusalem. And over the centuries, as people have looked at this passage describing the early church, Uh, most people have read it as a a sort of divine ideal. What should the church look like? What should a healthy, spirit-filled church be? What should it be characterized by? And while we cannot claim perfection for the church in Jerusalem or any of the churches described in Acts, I do think that is the right way to read this passage. I do think it sets forth for us a divine ideal, a picture of what God did to make and form a people for himself. And we will find in later chapters, sometimes the church is not perfect, we'll find weaknesses, we'll find lapses in faith, but overall we'll find a strong church Because the Holy Spirit was doing amazing things throughout Acts, which we know was Jesus doing amazing things through the Holy Spirit. And so this church that's described for us in Acts 2 is indeed worthy of our imitation. It is is right for us to pray that we would be a church like this church in Acts chapter 2. Now, it's important that we come to a passage like this because this is like Church 101 in the Bible. If you want to know of all the different passages that you would come to to know, what is the church about? What does the church do? How do God's people interact with one another and what are they dedicated to? This is Church 101 kind of passage for us. It's important that we have our Church 101 down Because we live in a day when many attempt to practice a sort of churchless Christianity. Respect for the church as an institution has dropped dramatically in recent decades. Uh, Church attendance and church involvement have continued to drop off in America. And you'll find that people are much more willing to adopt the label of spirituality rather than the label of churchgoer. One of those has a lot more uh, cultural respect than the other, for sure. And there's many reasons for this. There's reasons for this shift of people uh, not attending church, not respecting the church as an institution and as a voice in our culture. Uh, In some cases, you'll have people that have said that they experienced many hurts in the context of the church. They were hurt, they were wounded, Uh, and indeed, sometimes that is the case. Uh, Of course, as the church uh, struggles in America and as the church is in some degree of apostasy, Uh, It's not going to be a surprise that people are even hurt in the context of a weakening church. 
But we also do live in a therapeutic age, and people use the category of hurt to justify almost any decision they make. If they are hurt, they can do effectively whatever they want. And for some, they say, I was hurt, and I'm going to abandon the Church of Christ. I'm not going to have anything to do with it anymore. And, of course, it takes wisdom uh, for us to respond to people in those kinds of situations, with those kinds of convictions. But we, we need to understand that this abandoning of the church, this lack of respect for the church as an institution, is very, very damaging for the Christian faith in our land. In other cases, people, they abandon the church of Christ due to prideful, independent thinking, whereby they do not appreciate the role of the authority and the oversight of the church. They want to have nothing to do with that. And that brings me to a second reason why some attempt to practice a churchless Christianity. We live in a highly democratic and individualistic age. People want to choose for themselves, think for themselves, determine standards for themselves. And so many have, have little interest in being told what to believe, how to live, uh, not, not interested in being bound into a, a people that are covenanted together with a common faith and a common standard for truth and a common mission. It's, it's difficult for people to envision doing that. And so for the modern person, me and my Bible makes a lot more sense than Jesus and his people. There's two very different mindsets there. Me is a much more frequently emphasized pronoun than we. And it's important in the Christian life that we have a right conception of we as well as me as it relates to the Christian life. Just think about the fact that the majority of the New Testament is written to churches, not individuals. Yes, there's a few letters written to individuals, but generally speaking, the entire New Testament, by and large, is written to the churches of Christ, to the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Ephesus, to the churches of Galatia. The emphasis upon the New Testament is a Christian life that is lived in the context of the church. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. What happens when you receive the gospel? You're added to the number of God's people, and you're devoted to the same things together. And what I want us to see today, as we're in Acts 2 at the end, is that the church is God's project. This is the work of Jesus Christ. To be part of the body of Christ is to be a part of that kingdom of Christ that will never fail. The one project that will never fail in this world. The church will never perish. The church will not fail because of Jesus' plan for it. And so it's very important for us that we grasp this Church 101 passage, that we understand the calling that Christ has given us when we have put our trust in him and how we are then brought into the fellowship of the saints. So I want to give uh, to you um, three particular characteristics of uh, this church that's described in Acts 2, this will be the focus of our message. Three characteristics, and I'm going to just call them these three things. The first is the devoted church. The devoted church. The second is the generous church. which We, we see the generosity of God's people in this passage. The generous church. And then the third is the united church. The church that is united. 
Now, the first thing that we, we see, if you look at verse 47, there's a very important statement. It says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so I want us to grasp this very foundational point. Church growth happens because God builds his church. The Lord added to the church daily. We know that we have a role in it. We'll talk about our role in that work of God. But the fundamental point is to understand that the church grows because the Lord builds his church. And children, this is the first point in your notes, very foundational for us. Number one, God calls people out of the world into the fellowship of Christ's church. The only reason that anybody becomes a member of the church of Christ is because God has done a sovereign work of grace to bring them to himself. Notice when it says the 3,000 were added, it doesn't say the apostles added 3,000 people to the church. It doesn't say that. It says 3,000 were added, passive, were added to the church, that the Lord called them to himself. Yes, the apostles had a role. Yes, they preached. People responded, but it was the work of God. And so it's important for us to remember that this is how the church is built. And on that day, the Lord added 3,000 souls to the church. The church in Jerusalem went from somewhere around 120 to 3,120 in one day. And having been brought together, uh, they were then devoted to certain common ways of life now. They were baptized, of course, into the body. That was their induction into the church of Christ. And then it tells us what they were devoted to in verse 42. And so that's our focus right now is the devoted church, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. You'll see that the way this, the New King James translation renders it is they continued steadfastly. As the ESV renders this as they were devoted to these things. I like the word devoted. It's a common word that we use, and it's a valuable word. The idea of devoted is it describes something that you are continually engaging with or doing. It's something that you keep on doing You don't cease from it. You devote yourself to the ongoing habits and practices of it. Everyone in life has things that they devote themselves to. Uh, We we ask people when we get to meet them, what do you do, we say? What what kind of things do you do? Sometimes we just mean, what is your job? What is your career? But in in addition to that, we say, what are you interested in? What do you focus upon? What do you give your time to? Everybody has things that they devote in a deeper way to. You think of musicians. You think of a violinist. They, they devote themselves to the cultivation of playing this instrument. They practice. Uh, they learn how to read music better. They study music theory. And some go really deep. They practice for hours and hours of the day so that they can gain a certain excellence in the playing of the violin. They're devoted to the violin. Uh, we, we think of, of sports as well, people that, that go deep into certain kinds of physical athletics. You think of a football player, he's 
devoted to this sport. He's devoted to being excellent in it. He studies carefully. He, he learns plays. He, he practices. He exercises. He has a devotion to this. Others, they devote themselves to the realm of business. They, they study to understand business. They learn business principles. They learn finances. They go perhaps to school to, to gain a certain excellence in business. They, of course, learn practically how to engage in business. And they're devoted to the growth of wealth in the context of business. Now, as I say all of those, my purpose is not to contrast and say, that's what non-Christians do, and and Christians only do these other things. Of course, we as Christians can be uh, godly uh, devoted to uh, godly business. We can be devoted to music. We can be devoted to sports in an appropriate kind of way. But my point is to illustrate for you that everybody has something that they are really devoted to. Everybody has something that there is a life focus upon that that is central to their life. And what I want to argue from verse 42 is that for Christians, based upon this divine ideal of what the Holy Spirit did, the first and foremost things that we should be devoted to in life are these four things that the passage described for us if we, as members of the body of Christ. We are to be devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. We are to be devoted to breaking of bread with our brothers and sisters. We are to be devoted to the fellowship of Christ's church and and devoted to the prayers of God's people. I want you to see that these things are meant to be central in your life. They are meant to be of the utmost importance to you. Sometimes when we talk about people's devotedness to a hobby or a trade or a skill, we say they live and breathe that thing. They live and breathe. It defines who they are. And I would say that as God's people called out of the world, called into the fellowship of Christ's church, we ought to live and breathe the teaching of the word of God. We ought to live and breathe the life of prayer. We ought to live and breathe the fellowship of Christ's saints that we want to be with one another. We want to build relationship with one another and serve one another. So let's go into these four things a bit more. We want to hit each of the four areas of devotion. And children, this is the second point in your notes. We're going to hit each of these in turn. I'll say them quickly, but you can write them down as we hit them. Number two, the church is devoted to teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And we'll hit each of these as we go. So the teaching first of the apostles. Of course, the the people of God here, they had direct access to the actual apostles of Jesus Christ who were laying those foundation stones for the church. They were teaching the people. And this was the apostles' calling. They were called in the Great Commission to go out into the world, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything Jesus had commanded. And that's a big job. Teaching everything that Jesus had commanded, which is in essence this entire book, that's a big job uh, to do. And it's an ongoing job that we continue. We pick up from the apostles and we continue in the ministry of the church to the present day. But notably, the very first thing that Luke says the church was devoted to was the teaching of the apostles. That when you become a disciple of Christ, your learning 
process has just begun. It has not ended. You didn't get the eight-week course. Of course, they only got one day of preaching, by the way. But some people would say, you get this eight-week discipleship course, and then you're in the church. And we would say, well, you are beginning discipleship. You are going to be a disciple for the rest of your life. Because what is a disciple? A learner. One who learns at the feet of Jesus And so this is the mission of the church that the apostles were laying down as a foundation stone. The mission is to teach the nations the word of God, to disciple them in all the ways that Jesus said to walk and to believe. And so this is a big project. It's a long-term vision. We are always in the work of this discipleship. And I want us to see that the teaching ministry of this church is foundational to what we do. Uh, Whether it's the preaching on the Lord's Day, whether it is our Bible studies, whether it's the one-on-one interactions as we teach the Word, this is central to what we do as the church. We teach one another what Christ has given to us. And so I would ask each of us, do, do do you love the preaching of the Word of God? Do you value it? Do you anticipate it? Do you think, I need this? This is important to me. I am needing the teaching and the feeding of the word of God. And the more that we devote ourselves to this mission as we receive it and as we give it one to another, the stronger our church will be when we are devoted to the teaching of the word of God. So we go on now to the next part of the list, the the fellowship of God's people. The Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship. What does this word fellowship mean? Well, the word fellowship basically means a sharing of life together. We are brought into a common bond through Jesus Christ. We are made a special people unto himself. And we now share life together in a way that we don't share life with other people around us. It's a special relationship. We are the household of God, the family of God. And there's so much that we could say about the implications of fellowship, devotion to fellowship. But I would simply point out that what you see in Acts chapter 2 and throughout Acts is a church life that is not solely limited to the Sunday connection. The Sunday connection, of course, is vitally important for us as we gather in worship. That's when Christ's people particularly gathered in Acts and throughout the New Testament. But we are to have a sharing of life together that extends even beyond our Sunday gathering. We, we share with one another in deeper ways than just a single conversation. And in an isolated, lonely age that we live in, it is so vital that we restore these patterns of Christian fellowship one with another We live in a time when it has never been easier or faster to communicate with people in the world. Never been as quick or as easy. And then we wonder, why do people report extreme loneliness and depression? Shouldn't we be exceedingly connected with rich and deep relationships? Well, of course, we know that uh, the speed of technological communication does not equal good relationships. Quite the contrary at times. But people are lonely. People are isolated. They are in need of relationship. And and clearly, as we see in Acts, 
It was Christ's very purpose to, as he saves people, to call them out of the world, but not to put them in all of these distinct boxes where they're all alone from one another, but to bring them into fellowship with one another. He, he designed for his church to be that way. Increasingly, you'll find amongst uh, young people in the modern day that, that uh, people will pay $100 an hour, $200 an hour just to talk to a therapist because they report, they say, I can't have a deep conversation with anybody. I don't have anybody in my life that will just listen. It's pretty sad that you'd have to do that, that you would have nobody else in your life that would listen, that would would go deep with you, that would care about you. And that's so sad to hear that somebody is experiencing that. That is indeed how lonely a, a world we live in. Relationships are often so shallow and, and transitory. And so how needful it is for the health of the body of Christ that we cultivate a fellowship where we share life together. And the brothers on Friday mornings, we've been going through Thessal- uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and, and what we have found remarkable about those first three chapters of First Th- Thessalonians is how Paul so loved the Thessalonians. We don't even know how much he had really been with them or developed deep relationships with them, but he loved these people. And he, he reports that when he brought them the gospel, he didn't just come in as this a preacher that just kind of flew into town, did a big meeting, uh, shook a few hands, didn't remember any names, and then left town. That wasn't what Paul did when he came to Thessalonica. First uh, Thessalonians 2 verse 8, he, he says this uh, about them and to them. He says, I, I'm affectionately longing for you, and we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. This was Paul's ministry. It was a warm, personal, affectionate ministry. He brought the gospel to Thessalonica, but he gave his very life for these people. He shared himself. They shared themselves with him, and he loved them. This is what the church is called to grow into, is this kind of affectionate community where we really love one another deeply. The church then is not meant to be like an impersonal membership that you have at Costco or Sam's Club. You think about your membership at Costco or Sam's Club. You could say, I'm a member of Sam's Club. But you know nothing about your fellow members, probably. And you can cancel your membership at the first moment of difficulty or offense or disappointment. That's not what the church is supposed to be like, is just a membership at Sam's Club. It's supposed to go way deeper than that. The church is not a, meant to be a country club where you pay into it only to get the benefits out of it for yourself. You, you pay into the country club, you get access to the, the golf course, you get access to the gym, uh, but you don't actually have to contribute to the lives of anybody else in the country club because everybody would just is there for the benefits they paid into. Again, not the church of Christ. The church it rather ought to be considered, as the scriptures describe it, as a family a family that God has designed. And what do families that are ordered according to God's word do? Well, healthy families, they, they share life together. They eat together. They worship together. They help one another. 
They serve together. They build a home together. They build a culture together. This is what a family does. And we are called the household of God. We are called to be that family that shares life uh, with one another. As the, the hymn we sometimes sing, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, that well expresses this connection of fellowship. We share our mutual woes. Our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. That's the kind of connection that we are to cultivate and pray for and contribute to this local body. And as a community of sinners gathered at the feet of the cross, we are going to rub each other the wrong way. Sometimes frequently rub each other the wrong way. We will at times annoy each other. But thankfully, we're also given the grace to forgive one another. The grace to bear with one another. And without the grace of Christ, our fellowship would be impossible to continue. It would break down if it was just our natural fleshly abilities to keep it going. And so I hope that each of us will, will pray for this church and, and the church of Christ as a whole, that we will be that, that community, which is a fellowship, a sharing of life together. And thanks be to God, I do see uh, much of it taking place at, uh, at different times in the body. And may it be so more and more. So we go on to, uh, through uh, Luke's list. We come now to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, it's often been debated, is Luke speaking about uh, regular meals, like a fellowship meal or a meal in somebody's home, or is he talking about the Lord's Supper in particular? And there's plenty of debate about this that there's not absolute certainty. And of course, we could say, well, I imagine they did both. There's good reason to think they had meals together and they had the Lord's Supper together. So that's, that's safe to say. But I would argue that I think Luke is likely referring to the Lord's Supper here. And the first reason is that he specifically says the breaking of bread. He has the word the in front of all of these items on the list, in fact. So he seems to have something very particular in mind, the breaking of bread. The second reason would be in Acts 20, verse 7. It actually says that they came together on the first day of the week, to break bread. So it seems like there's an assembly taking place, they are worshiping together, and they're breaking bread together. Perhaps they also had a fellowship meal. Uh, Acts 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. This is the key passage where Eutychus falls out of the window and uh, Paul prolongs his speaking because he was about to depart, so he had a lot to say to them. But one of the things they did was to gather on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, to break bread. And so this, the, the Lord's Supper, if we were to focus upon it for a moment, is one of the highest expressions of our unity and oneness in Christ. The Lord's Supper sets forth for us visually that we are one body. We partake of one loaf. We partake of one cup. And all of this is designed to communicate that we are now one together in the fellowship of Christ's people. And so this is an important way our oneness is expressed is in the breaking of bread together. And we'll keep going through the list. The prayers, they were devoted to the prayers of the church 
Uh, I'm sure this included the whole range of contexts, uh, individual prayer, corporate prayer. Once again, uh, Luke gives the word the, the prayers. Uh, it seemed to maybe be that they had these times where they came together to pray together. We find that many times in Acts. Wherever Christ's people exist in the world, they will be a praying people. You're not going to find a true church that is not, to some degree or another, a praying church. Spiritual life is evidenced by the existence of prayer. And the Bible says that the fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. Now put a bunch of righteous men and women together, praying together. What can we do by the power of God as we pray together? Now if we would be a healthy church following the this, this spirit-directed example in Acts chapter 2, then we need, we must be a church devoted to prayer. The prayer life of our church is one of the most important markers of our spiritual health. When you go to the doctor, either for a general well visit or you're sick, what's the first thing that the doctor does? Well, often it's a nurse assistant, and they take your vital signs. You remember this? They take your vital signs... They usually check for four things in particular. They want to check your body temperature, your pulse, your respiration rate, and your blood pressure. They want to see, how are you doing on these four basic vital signs? Because if any of these are off, or all of them are off, we know that something is wrong. We know that something needs to be done. And I would say that as you look at this list of four things, it's like the four vital signs of the church. How is the church doing? Is it healthy? Well, are we devoted to the teaching of the word? Do we devote ourselves to the prayers of the church? Are we connected into the fellowship of Christ's body? And are we devoted to the breaking of bread? These are like the four vital signs that Luke gives us uh, through the Spirit for how the church is doing. Is the church healthy? Is it alive? Is it growing or is it languishing? These are some helpful vital signs for us. And coming back to prayer once again, prayer is this essential vital sign of health for us. It's so important because when Jesus saves a people and when the Holy Spirit works within people's hearts to give them new life, what happens to those people? Well, the Bible says that the Spirit of God is sent into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. It's the spontaneous cry of life. Once we come into spiritual life, you pray, you speak to God. It is absolutely essential. Now, when it comes to strengthening the body of Christ in any of these areas, particularly as we think about prayer, it is a a temptation for any of us to think this. Somebody else will do that. You know, this sometimes happens in the context of service in the church. You know, a service opportunity comes up, and you might think, somebody else will probably do that. Now, what if everybody thought that? Nobody would do it. Nobody would do anything. And when it comes to the life of prayer in the church, I hope you do not think, well, somebody else is probably doing that. No, this is for all of us to lean into. It's for every man and woman and boy and child in this church to say, I'm going to lean into the prayers of this church. I can contribute to the health of the body of Christ by praying. And children, this is one of the best things that you can do to be a part of the body of Christ. It's certainly not the only way. But one of the things you can do is to take the prayer list home with you and to pray over it yourself or with your family. This is a great way to love Jesus' people is to pray for them. 
It's such an important way that we seek to grow the health of the church. All right, so we've gone over the four vital signs of the devoted church. We come now to the generous church. Verses 44 through 45, it says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This particular two verses here in Acts 2 have often uh, produced controversy because people are trying to figure out what exactly was going on here. This is such a remarkable, amazing thing taking place. We think, how do we interact with this? How do we apply this in the modern day? Uh, What does this mean for us? And some have even found this to be so strange that they say, well, it seems like they were practicing some form of uh, Christian socialism here, and it Maybe it didn't even work out very well, so we ought not to do this, and they kind of back away from it. Of course, others say, hey, this is Christian socialism, and actually validates all of our socialistic efforts in the context of the state. So we know that both of those directions I think we ought to avoid. How should we view what's taking place here? Well, I would suggest that we view what's taking place here in a very positive light as a work of the Spirit of God in the people of God. And how do we apply this? Well, I do not think that Luke is describing for us any form of communism or socialism whatsoever. Uh, We know from Acts 2 and Acts 4 and 5 that this giving of the people of God was voluntary. It was not compulsory. We know even that there was not specifically defined amounts that they were having to give. There was a freedom that God's people had in the uh, generosity they exercised. So we need to recognize that. It was done out of a heart of love. It was done uh, out of uh, a motive driven by the Spirit of God to care for those people who had nothing. And we also need to remember that the Jerusalem church was quickly facing persecution. And in the context of persecution, we know that life and possessions are stripped away by force. And you have a situation where the church especially has to step up the generosity to especially care for those that are in dire need. I would also point out that this this particular example is not universal throughout Acts. There are examples later in Acts where people's homes were being met in. They weren't sold to the church. You could go meet in so-and-so's home, and he still owned this home. So it wasn't as if all the Christians everywhere, the second they became converted, got rid of all their private property. That's not what's being described here. Another uh, detail I would give you in this regard is that the particular tense in the Greek tells us that there was an ongoing selling. It wasn't just like it happened once, they were converted, they sold everything. It actually says as there was needs, they were selling and dividing. And so what this means is, is as the church had needs, as they said, brothers and sisters, this person over here, they're in need today, they, they, don't, have a, they don't have their ability to work, or they ha- have no food to feed their children tomorrow, they would say, okay, who's got something? What can we do and then they would sell something, and they would say, okay, let's divide this. Maybe the, and the apostles would help. There were no deacons yet. And they would then distribute it to those who had need. And in essence, then, the idea is that as needs arised, the church met them. And the same principle exists for us, brothers and sisters. As the needs arise, we, the church, ought to meet them. When somebody in our congregation perhaps cannot work, uh, perhaps they've lost their job, uh, perhaps they have no ability to feed or clothe their children, we need to rise to the, the need and to help. 
And that may involve selling things. Of course, being that we're a quite relatively wealthy church in the particular context of America, in the context of the richest nation in the world, we do not confront this situation very often. But if we were to confront it, this would be our calling to help and provide for the needs of God's people. And yes, we would need to observe all the other biblical principles of work and charity. There's many other principles beyond this passage. But this does tell us that the church of Christ is to care for its own. We are to do good to the household of God and to provide for the needs of others. As John in 1 John 3, he writes, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then he gives a particular application of laying down your life. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so this is a key test of our love. Will we care for our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are in need? Would we let anybody in this church go hungry, go without clothing, go without shelter? Would we do that? Well, the scriptures would call us to care for those in such a situation. And so kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, Christ's people take care of Christ's people. God's people take care of one another. And it may be if we face some more difficult economic circumstances or we face persecution, that the principle that's laid out for us here is going to become all the more relevant. Uh, we do not know what the future holds, but the, the pattern here in Acts chapter 2 is one of readiness to meet the needs that arose. <clears throat> and so we continue on here. We, uh, we see that The next, that the church was the united church, verses 46 through 47. This is our final uh, section of our passage. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Amen. Well, with one accord, it says. They were doing these things with one accord. And what were the things that they were doing? Well, a number of things. It says that they continued every single day in the temple. They're here in Jerusalem, the temple standing. They, they went into the temple frequently. Every day they were there uh, praying and witnessing. Uh, some have wondered, like, did, did the early Christians participate in the sacrifices of the temple? Uh, we can't answer that definitively. Uh, we don't necessarily have passages that tell us they, they did not participate in the sacrifices of the temple, but certainly as the, the teaching of the apostles was brought out, the Christians were coming to see with more clarity that the temple system and its purposes was coming to an end. But we do know that one of the reasons they were in the temple was to bear witness to Jesus. That was one of the reasons they would regularly go there. We'll see this in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5 when the apostles are preaching in the temple. They would go in at the hour of prayer, participate in the prayers, but they preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this was one of the things that the early Christians were united in, was united in public witness. They were setting forth this message of the gospel with clarity to the people that were around them. And that was one of the reasons that they were in the temple. And so, children, this brings us to our fourth point in our notes, number four. The church is united together in witness 
and worship. Well, regarding unity of, of witness, we see that they were all brought together into this fellowship and they were devoted to the very same gospel message. Uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he speaks about the importance of the church standing together for the witness of the gospel. He says in Philippians 1.27, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what do we link arms to do? Well, we link arms to care for one another, to disciple one another, but we also link arms to share this message with the world. The Spirit-filled church is united in its witness to the truth of the gospel, and that means that where you have a fractured and divisive church, if you have a church squabbling over minor matters and constantly in disputes with itself, you don't have a church context that is going to be fruitful in spreading the gospel. How could we share the message when we're busy fighting with one another? How can an army advance upon its enemy when there's internal fighting in the trenches? An army that's attacking itself is divided and it's ineffective. And so it's important that as we think about our witness to the world, that (laughs) even while we have secondary discussions and areas of disagreement with one another, that we are absolutely steadfastly united in the truth of the gospel and the importance of it. So next, we see finally their unity of worship. It says that they were with one accord, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. This was what they were about. They, as they, they witnessed, of course, the truth of the gospel, one of, part of their witness was simply to praise God for what he had done. That remains a very important way that we speak to a watching world is to praise God for the things that he has done. That's what was preached on the day of Pentecost through, through tongues. It, it says that they were declaring the mighty works of God. This is what we're declaring to the world. We, we have so much to say, so much to offer the world in terms of things that God has done. We say, you have no idea what great things God has done. They had received Jesus as Lord and Savior. They knew God's love for sinners as revealed in the gospel of Christ. And so they had a new song in their mouths. A song of praise to their God. And that spirit-produced life within them brought forth a life of praise with one accord. And so as we end our time in chapter 2, the last words of the the chapter are a fitting place to conclude, which we began with, uh, the very last words of Acts 2, verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. And so as we look at this, as we remember that the growth of the church is the work of God, our response then to this chapter should first be to long for this growth. As we've heard in other sermons recently, we need to have a burden for the growth of Christ's church, growth in maturity, growth in number, and then we need to pray for it. We need to pray for the church of Christ to grow. And as an application of our brother Pastor Todd's exhortation, all these new homes going in, what a, what a great opportunity we have as the mission field and the, uh, those who need to be reached come near us. And then we need to labor and contribute to the church. We need to be devoted to the church. 
Every prayer that's offered up, every kind word that's shared, every faithful teaching opportunity, every sacrificial act of love, every meal made and given, all of these things build up the church of Christ. This is the way in which we as members, we all contribute our part, every single one of us. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, the church grows in love when every single part contributes to it. And that's what we're called to do, is, is to find our part in the body of Christ, which is usually, usually not just one single task, it's usually fairly broad of the kinds of things that we can do. You are to find your part, and you are to contribute to the upbuilding of this body of Christ, so that we might uh, pray for the church's growth, and then labor for the church's growth as well. And in all of this, whenever we look back, and we step back years later, as we do from time to time, and we see what God has done, we say, praise be to Jesus Christ. We know that he did this. Amen. So let us pray for this. Our God and Father, we, we give thanks for your amazing work that you have done in Acts chapter 2, and we know that you have continued to do throughout history in building up the church, spreading it across the world, bringing it to Colorado, bringing us into the church of Christ, We thank you for the great privilege to be a part of the fellowship of Christ's people. And I pray that we would be those who love the church of Christ. Those who are devoted to its worship and its service. Those who are devoted 